This Moment Outdoors is brought to you by L.L. Bean, official partner of the National Park Foundation for the Find Your Park movement. probably know a great deal about the somber history of the battle at Gettysburg. And if you don't, I'm betting you've at least heard the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address was the PR phase of one of the biggest turning points in American history, when we finally decided to cut ties with slavery. And the formal document, of course, that Abraham Lincoln drafted to make that happen was the Emancipation Proclamation. Now this is a document with a storied history and that has had historians arguing for decades about its meaning, about its purpose, and about its effect. On this episode of America's National Parks, a lecture from park ranger Dan Vermilia at Gettysburg National Military Park about the Emancipation Proclamation and its meaning. This lecture enthralled me. It's a little bit longer than most our episodes, but I think it's worth it, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Well, we're very glad to have everybody here today at uh, Gettysburg National Military Park. My name is Dan Vermilia. I'm a park ranger here. It's very nice to be here with you again for our annual winter lecture series. We look forward to these lectures a lot every year. Uh, start of our year-long interpretive program, interpretive scheduling here. I always enjoy getting a chance to come and talk here at these lecture series. And our theme for the lectures this year is myths and controversies of the Civil War, which when you stop and think about it, there's a lot there. Uh, the Civil War is probably the biggest event in American history. It's a defining event in American history in a lot of different ways. Lots of lore, lots of controversies. And in digging through some different topics, just doing some online searches to see what some different sites on the internet said were some of the myths and controversies of the war, one thing that I kept seeing come up time and time again was the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's a topic that isn't talked about perhaps as much as it should be in some ways. It's a topic that's misunderstood in other ways. A lot of questions and misconceptions out there about this topic. So that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, many question whether the Emancipation Proclamation actually did anything, whether it actually freed any slaves. And we'll be talking about a lot of these things in detail. I just want to run through a few of these up front. The proclamation didn't apply to border states. Uh, it only impacted certain parts of the country, and those were parts of the country that were claiming they had no uh, uh, jurisdiction. The proclamation had no jurisdiction over them. They were claiming they were a separate country at the time. So a lot of folks say, well, the Emancipation Proclamation was really just a piece of paper and didn't do anything, didn't free any slaves. Others say that Lincoln didn't really care about slavery. He just issued the proclamation as a propaganda measure, meaning to deter Europe from intervening or recognizing the South during the Civil War. 
Others say that the proclamation was unconstitutional outside of the president's war powers. Others still say that the proclamation subverted the real cause of the Civil War, hijacking it and making it something entirely different altogether. Uh, now, the Emancipation Proclamation is, well, fine, it's a very complex document. It's a very complex situation. And if you actually take the time to sit down and read it, it doesn't read like Lincoln's other documents. You don't want to sit down and read the Emancipation Proclamation the way you might the Lincoln-Douglas debates, or, of course, the famous Gettysburg Address. And uh, historian Richard Hofstadter said in 1948 that the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, had all the moral grandeur of a bill of lading, which is essentially a receipt from a transaction. It's saying it's the same as looking at the receipt you get from Dunkin' Donuts. It has all that moral power to it. So it's a confusing document. A lot of quotes on it out there, a lot of takes on it out there. Jefferson Davis called it the most execrable measure in the history of guilty man, while Horace Greeley said of it, it was, quote, the beginning of the end of the rebellion and the beginning of a new life for the nation. Now, we're very familiar with Lincoln and these words, a new birth of freedom, of course, given here at the famous Gettysburg Address. And yet the Gettysburg Address was a speech. It was more of a rhetorical explanation for what was going on in the United States at that time. The Gettysburg Address didn't free a single slave. The Gettysburg Address was Lincoln trying to explain what was occurring in the United States. It was, in some ways, a rhetorical flourish for the Emancipation Proclamation, given many months after he had issued that famous document. And it's understood as a part of a larger story. This and the Emancipation Proclamation must be understood together. We might say that the Emancipation Proclamation was the prose that gave some of the substance to the Gettysburg Address. But Lincoln's actual work of advancing the cause of freedom was the Emancipation Proclamation. And it was part of a much larger story. Lincoln himself said of the document of the Emancipation Proclamation, it was the central act of my administration and the great event of the 19th century. So how do we understand this as a part of a larger story? There's a lot of context we have to talk about. We're going to talk about a lot of things that aren't directly related to the document, but it's part of a larger story. We have to build the puzzle and understand where this fits in the larger story. Of course, slavery in the United States, America's original sin. The founding of the country, some hoped that it would die out gradually, but as the decades passed and America grew larger, slavery grew larger and larger with it. So much so that by 1860, on the eve of the American Civil War, there were four million slaves in the American South, which according to historian James Oakes, quote, with four million slaves in 1860, the South was by far the largest slave society in the world, possibly the largest in the history of the world. At the height of the Roman Empire, there had been around two million slaves in the Italian peninsula, four million in the American South, showing that this is such a deeply rooted institution, such a powerful institution in the American South. This is no simple problem that needs fixing. Of course, with slavery as the original sin of the country, many ask, was this a country founded in freedom? Our founding documents speak of it only tangentially. Of course, the Declaration declaring all men are created equal, but it's written by Thomas Jefferson, a slaveholder. Many other slaveholders involved in the crafting of the United States voted for by the Continental Congress, many, many members of which were also slaveholders. The Constitution doesn't mention slavery specifically by name, 
but it deals with it in several ways, several different clauses touching on it, the three-fifths clause, fugitive slave clause, banning of the slave trade clause. But it's otherwise silent on slavery, leading many to believe that slavery would be a state's issue in the early years of the republic. Well, as the country grew and advanced, tensions over slavery intensified. I know for some of you this might be very familiar history, but it's worth covering to understand the approach that Lincoln will eventually take to this subject himself. As the country grew, the biggest contention was should slavery grow with it and how should it grow with it? Things like the Missouri Compromise limited slavery's growth to south of the 3630 line, blocking it north of that line while admitting Missouri as a slave state in 1820. With the Mexican War, there came new lands, the Compromise of 1850, and all of this was a tenuously held compromise keeping the country together. But the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 essentially opened up many of the territories for the United States to slavery, believing that if settlers in those territories voted for it, then they could have slavery, which did a lot to unsettle the compromise that had very thinly held the country together for so long. In the midst of this, you have abolitionists in the North developing two different strategies to deal with the problem of slavery. The gradual approach, believing that the Constitution did not empower the government to abolish slavery in the states where it already existed, but they could limit its spread. Abolitionists maintained through this that there was no right of property in slaves. And this was perhaps best laid out by Charles Sumner in his August 1852 Freedom National speech, where he said, In all national territories, slavery will be impossible. On the high seas, under the national flag, slavery will be impossible. In the District of Columbia, slavery will instantly cease. Congress can give no sanction to slavery in admission of the new slave states. Nowhere under the Constitution can the nation, by legislation or otherwise, support slavery, hunt slaves, or hold property in man. He's saying there that we can't take it out of the states in the South where it exists, but we can certainly stop it, cordon off those states. We also had others, chief among them John Quincy Adams, the former president, begin to lay out an argument that there was a more direct path towards emancipation rather than limiting slavery's growth and hoping it would gradually die out. And that was military emancipation. John Quincy Adams is discussing this in the 1830s three decades before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. He said, this power of the president under his authority as commander-in-chief to, in a time of rebellion in the American South, declare slaves emancipated, this power is tremendous. It is strictly constitutional. And these are two competing theories. They're going to be pursued simultaneously during the war itself. But it is amidst this that Abraham Lincoln emerges as a figure on the national political scene, this backwoods Jupiter, which of all the quotes describing Abraham Lincoln, this might be my favorite one, backwoods Jupiter. Because it gives you this image of him with his Kentucky twang, his at times crude sense of humor, yet still wielding tremendous power and being a tremendous statesman. Lincoln, of course, was a brilliant legal mind, a brilliant lawyer in so many ways. And it was said that in a legal case, he could understand that there were seven key points, but he could concede the first six, knowing that without the seventh, the first six were irrelevant. He could look at an issue, understand it in its complexity, and be able to understand what points were crucial to defend and what points were not. And it is that key legal mind, that keen legal mind, that Lincoln will employ as president in dealing with many issues, chief among them slavery and the development of the Emancipation Proclamation. 
and for the argument that Lincoln never really cared much for slavery, that he didn't think it was a moral wrong. Well, what is Lincoln himself actually saying about this institution in the 1850s? Well, in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, opening up the territories to the expansion of slavery through popular sovereignty, that is an event that really revives Lincoln's political career and helps begin his path towards the presidency, though it was several years out. He's talking about how the Republican robe was soiled by the stain of slavery. This helped him to launch into the famous 1858 Senate race between him and Senator Stephen Douglas, where he said, of this indifference towards the spread of slavery, this declared indifference, but as I must think, covert the real zeal for the spread of slavery, I cannot but hate. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world, enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity. Lincoln said in October of 1858 in one of his debates with Douglas, now I confess myself as belonging to that class in the country who contemplate slavery as a moral, social, and political evil. And throughout these famous Senate debates, and if you haven't ever read them, I would encourage you to do so because it's tremendous oratory. Lincoln was slowly building the case that slavery was morally wrong and you didn't inherently have a right to do something that was morally wrong. And of course, through these debates, he emerges as a larger national figure, becomes the Republican nominee for president in 1860, wins a highly contentious election without a single Southern electoral vote. After Lincoln's election, southern states begin seceding. First seven of them secede. Then after the war begins at Fort Sumter, and Lincoln calls for thousands of troops to put down this rebellion, four more secede still. So now it is 1861. Abraham Lincoln, believing slavery to be morally wrong, is president of the United States, and the country is pulling itself apart. What is he going to do? Well, Lincoln has a very big dilemma here. Personally, he believes slavery to be a great moral evil, as we heard. But his oath, his oath excuse me, was to uphold the Constitution and keep the Union together. He's personally opposed to slavery, but he can't act or do anything to uh, jeopardize losing the border states. He has to try to keep this country together as best as he can. But events will eventually force Lincoln's hand. Events will carry the country further along on the road towards emancipation. And First among these events has to do with some of the generals serving underneath President Lincoln. Ben Butler, command of Fortress Monroe in Virginia. In May of 1861, some escaped slaves made their way to Butler's fort. When asked to return the slaves to their owners, Butler said no. He said that because the southern states had seceded, including Virginia, the fugitive slave laws no longer applied. They were no longer protected under those laws. Butler wrote to the War Department for approval of his actions, and approval was granted using the term contraband to describe these slaves who had made their way towards Union lines. In times of war, historically, it has been considered allowable to seize enemy property. In this case, with the South, of course, claiming slaves are their property, they were liable to seizure, and Butler's decision stood. And it began to not necessarily define United States Army policy, but it grew in many ways. Of course, it didn't apply at all to the border states, those states, Maryland, Kentucky, Delaware, Missouri, that were still loyal to the Union and thus were still protected by the laws of the United States. 
And indeed, in response to this, Secretary of War Simon Cameron noted of this new contraband policy allowing the Union Army to keep, if you will, runaway slaves, quote, the question of their final disposition will be reserved for further determination. Basically saying this is just a temporary thing. It's not any sort of lasting arrangement, accepting these runaway slaves as contraband. Other generals to act along these lines or similar to these lines, John Fremont in Missouri in 1861, issued a proclamation declaring military emancipation in Missouri, catching many, including President Lincoln, off guard. Lincoln, being in an awkward place, he can't lose Missouri as a key border state. He fears this act will push Missouri towards the Confederacy, so he orders Fremont to rescind this military proclamation. And in a similar fashion, David Hunter in South Carolina, he also issued an edict of emancipation General Orders Number 11 in May of 1862, declaring martial law and emancipation in several southern states. This, too, was rescinded by President Lincoln. Again, Lincoln is caught in the middle here. Personally, he's opposed to slavery, but he can't risk losing these border states. He has to try to keep this country together as best as he can. So while generals in the field are toying with military emancipation in its various forms, there are other efforts to continue policies of gradual abolition, the same idea that had begun years before by abolitionists prior to the start of the Civil War. And it's summed up in a story that Lincoln told to his friend Wendell Phillips in early 1862 of an Irishman going to a bar and being denied a drink because it wasn't medicinal. And upon being denied, the Irishman asked if the bartender could simply slip some alcohol into a drink unbeknownst to himself gradually as a means of getting what he wanted. And it's this similar idea of gradually slipping in emancipation measures into national policy that will continue to limit the spread and the survival of slavery. Among these, uh, Congress declares that the military will not enforce fugitive slave laws during the war, in a sense giving a congressional stamp of approval to what General Ben Butler had already been doing in Virginia. There is a policy of compensated emancipation that is being proposed. The abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., that occurs in April of 1862, where over a million dollars was set aside to pay slave owners for their slaves, up to $300 per slave. And it offered these slaves $100 if they relocated to foreign lands such as Haiti or Liberia. And this occurred on April 16th of 1862, a day that is still celebrated as Emancipation Day in Washington, D.C., these policies, such as compensated emancipation, was a means of offering an olive branch to some slave owners, especially in some border states, saying this war is so expensive and so costly. So it would be cheaper if we simply paid to liberate and emancipate your slaves. One state where Lincoln specifically proposed this for was the state of Delaware. And you can imagine many of these slaveholders are saying, no, thank you. We don't accept this offer. Lincoln is also pursuing ideas of colonization, that is, sending freed slaves elsewhere, getting them out of the United States, helping to deal with the fears over races intermixing and the social consequences of emancipation and abolishing slavery. And of course, amidst all this, there are those problems with those key pesky border states. Lincoln understands these issues with the border states all too well. Being from Kentucky, he realized, as he said, I hope to have God on our side, but we must have Kentucky. He knows that if he loses these states, it's going to be very bad for the Union. Congress is also taking key measures known as the famous Confiscation Acts. 
The first Confiscation Act comes in the summer of 1861 in the month of August. It authorizes the confiscation of any Confederate property being used to support the rebellion. And here property includes slaves, as slave labor was being employed by Confederates in many different ways, not just on the home front, but in some regards helping to maintain the war effort itself. And it introduces this idea of military emancipation as an actual federal policy, Congress authorizing the confiscation of enemy slaves. It's essentially instructing the rest of the army to follow Ben Butler's lead, what he had established first at Fort Monroe in Virginia. In July of 1862, Congress passed the second Confiscation Act, declared that any Confederate official still fighting in 60 days would have his slaves freed. And it's only applicable to Confederate states where federal troops were already present. And you'll note here it says it requires presidential proclamation to go into effect. Essentially, by July of 1862, when the second Confiscation Act had passed, the course of events had taken things so far. Between generals in the field acting, Congress acting, the circumstances of war, the country had changed substantially. All the while, Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C. is seeing as the casualty tolls of this war were growing higher and higher. And deep down, Lincoln knew as president he was responsible for all of this. He knew that with this bloodshed occurring in the country, there had to be some greater meaning to this sacrifice. It had to move the United States towards a better country. And July 1862 ends up being a pivotal month, although Lincoln himself doesn't actually issue anything in July of 1862. He first kind of discusses the idea of issuing an Emancipation Proclamation on July 13th. See, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's infant son had died. And on the carriage ride to the funeral, Lincoln told Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells that he was thinking about issuing a proclamation of emancipation regarding the slaves in the South. Several days later, one of Lincoln's secretaries, John Hay, wrote, quote, he will not conserve slavery much longer. When he next speaks, he of course being the president, when he next speaks in relation to this defiant and ungrateful villainy, it will be with no uncertain sound. And on July 22nd, at a cabinet meeting, a moment of truth arrived for President Lincoln. He told his cabinet members that he had decided to issue an emancipation proclamation regarding the slaves in the South. He told them that his mind was made up as to whether or not to do this. He was going to do it. However, the matter was open for their input as to how and when to issue this proclamation, the particulars, if you will. After discussing the matter, it was Secretary of State William Seward who suggested waiting before issuing this Emancipation Proclamation. As things were not going very well at that time for the Union, Union armies were experiencing many different setbacks. And Seward believed, rightfully so, that if this proclamation were to be issued when Union forces were being defeated on the battlefield, well then it's going to look like a move of desperation. It's going to look like they're trying to outflank the Confederacy with a Hail Mary down the field. Well, that's not at all what Lincoln wants this to be. He wants it to be seen as an act of righteousness. So he agrees with Seward and he decides to wait. He will take this draft of an Emancipation Proclamation and hold on to it. In the meantime, the rest of the country knows nothing of this. And in August of 1862, Horace Greeley publishes in his paper a prayer of 20 million begging President Lincoln to do something regarding slavery and emancipation. It was on August 19th of 1862. 
And Lincoln wrote a response several days later, which has been hotly debated ever since. And his response, written on August 22nd, really is at the heart of a lot of the controversies about the Emancipation Proclamation. Because Lincoln says in his response to Horace Greeley, in part, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. He went on to say, I have here stated my purpose according to my view of my official duty, and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Well, gee, he just said he didn't care about slavery in that quote. Well, keep in mind, Lincoln is above all else a politician, correct? And from time to time, you may know, politicians will say things or write things which aren't necessarily entirely true. Well, Lincoln writes this public letter responding to Horace Greeley saying essentially, yes, I'm trying to still save the Union. But remember, one month before, to the day, ironically, July 22nd was when he had that cabinet meeting. August 22nd is when he writes this letter. One month before, he had already told his cabinet, I'm going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that that was, in his opinion, something necessary to both save the Union and push the country towards a better future. Lincoln simply just waiting for the right time. Well, the right time would come soon enough. The war would force his hand. The war would present the opportunity. In the late summer of 1862, Confederates continued their momentum with victories at 2nd Manassas in Virginia. In the west, Braxton Bragg pushed north into the state of Kentucky. And in the east, Robert E. Lee moved into Maryland. And in mid-September, Union and Confederate forces squared off near the banks of Antietam Creek in the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest single day in American history, with over 23,000 casualties, killed, wounded, missing in the span of 12 hours. At the start of this campaign, Lincoln would later state that when the campaign began, when Confederates under Lee crossed into Maryland, at that time he made a promise to himself and to God that should Lee's army be pushed out of Maryland somehow in some way, that would be the victory that he needed, the victory for which he had been waiting to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. By the morning of September 19th, after the heavy bloodshed at Antietam, Confederates had retreated back across the Potomac River. Several days later, once it was clear that Confederates would not come back into the state at that time, Monday, September 22nd, 1862, five days after Antietam, while the carnage still covered the battlefield, Lincoln held another cabinet meeting. And he began the meeting in a rather odd way. He began by reading an amusing story from Artemis Ward, not exactly what you would do to start a meeting where you're going to issue something that people will be talking about for centuries. And then he told them that it was time to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, when the rebel army was at Frederick, I determined as soon as it should be driven out of Maryland to issue a proclamation of emancipation, I said nothing to anyone, but I made a promise to myself and to my maker. The rebel army is now driven out, and I am going to fulfill that promise. So Lincoln decides and tells them that he's issuing his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which declares that on January 1st of 1863, when the final version was signed, 
All slaves in those states then in rebellion against the federal government would be then, thenceforward, and forever free. In this text, he says that their war is still being waged to preserve the Union, and he declares that the freedom of these slaves would be recognized and maintained by the government. He says that as of January 1st, 1863, the day this proclamation goes live, goes into effect, if you will, he says that on that day, he will make clear the exact areas that this will apply to. And we'll get into that in a little bit. It also places two congressional laws into action, a March 1862 law banning military personnel from returning escaped slaves, and that second confiscation act that we discussed a little bit earlier. So Lincoln has issued his preliminary proclamation, giving 100 days before the final version was issued. He would later say that he didn't really realize at the time that it was a span of exactly 100 days. That was just one of the ironies of history. Those 100 days did not go over all that well. Many saw this indeed as a desperate move, even though it came after the Union victory at Antietam, where Lee's army had been set back, saying that this was Lincoln's last warning to the Confederacy. Come back, or else I will take your slaves. In those 100 days, there are many things going against President Lincoln. There are midterm elections that are seeing Democratic gains. Union defeats on the battlefield at Fredericksburg in Virginia and in Mississippi. Worries over European intervention continued still. And by late December, there is a federal offensive into central Tennessee, the fate of which is still unclear by the time Lincoln issues his proclamation. Moreover, there are morale problems in the North and in Northern armies. Many Union soldiers see this proclamation and think, I didn't sign up to fight to free any slaves. I signed up to preserve the Union and to do only that. Making matters worse for President Lincoln, he's squabbling and having difficulties with Union Commander George McClellan, an extremely popular figure who Lincoln would have to relieve of his command because McClellan was among many others and simply not getting on board and believing in the Emancipation Proclamation. And in the midst of all this, all this doubt, all of these setbacks, Lincoln stays the course. In his December 1862 message to Congress, he continues pressing the matter. He still proposes compensated emancipation and other gradual measures, but he says, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history, saying that the light of history will be shining upon them in this moment. On December 31st, New Year's Eve, many waited and wondered if Lincoln would actually issue this Emancipation Proclamation. African Americans gathered in churches, meeting houses to wait and hear word of if Lincoln would actually issue this measure. And that night was a lonely one for President Lincoln. I can only imagine what was going through his mind that evening as he paced the halls of the White House, knowing that the next day he was going to issue this document, the likes of which no other American president had ever issued before. He didn't sleep much that night. On the morning of January 1st, New Year's Day, 1863, Lincoln wrote out the final text of the Emancipation Proclamation. He sent it out to the State Department for an official copy. But he didn't sign it until the afternoon, until after he had been downstairs greeting well-wishers in the executive mansion, shaking hands for several hours. And in case you might guess, after shaking hands for several hours, Lincoln's hand was a little sore. So much so that when he went to sign his name on the final version of the Emancipation Proclamation, his hand was shaking. And he was concerned that years from now, someone would see a shaky signature on there and think that he didn't believe in the measure, 
thinking that this was a half-hearted measure. So we paused and he said, I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper. And he affixed his signature and the Emancipation Proclamation became official. So what did this final Emancipation Proclamation do? January 1st, 1863. Declared all slaves in those states in rebellion against the federal government to be forever free. Declared that the federal government would play an active role in guaranteeing and maintaining the freedom of former slaves. Bold language, precedent-setting language in many ways. And also importantly, and often overlooked, it opens the door for African Americans to serve in the Union Army and Navy during the Civil War. These are three key components of the Emancipation Proclamation. It's openly enticing slaves now to come to Union lines and then allowing them to join the Union armed forces. Now, he does include an appeal against slave uprisings and violence, and it specifically lays out areas where it did have authority in the South. So this answers the what did it do question. A little bit tougher to answer, what did it not do? Because there's a lot here as well. What did it not do? It has very precise legalistic language. As I noted earlier, it's got that moral grandeur of a bill of lading. It exempts large parts of the Confederacy that were then under federal control. It's claiming authority over these Confederate states, even though they certainly wouldn't see it that way. It's not as though slaveholders in Alabama or Georgia are going to say, well, the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued. I guess we better listen to President Lincoln. That's not going to happen. It only frees slaves in states over which the government currently at that time really doesn't have control. Slavery is untouched in the border states. It is a temporary war measure in many different ways. It's not making slavery as an institution illegal. It's only affecting the status of certain slaves themselves. And as such, it doesn't have a lasting legal impact beyond the war. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to the what did it not do section. So you might wonder, well, if it doesn't do all that, why is it so important? Why doesn't it apply to every single part of the Confederacy? Why doesn't it apply to the border states? This is one of those myths I've seen used a lot, saying that it's not really that effective. Lincoln didn't really mean it. If he meant it, why didn't he free slaves in the border states? Well, the answer is very simple. Lincoln is issuing this under his war powers as commander-in-chief. He therefore can't issue it for parts of the country that currently aren't in a war against the federal government. He has to write this very carefully, very specifically, because he knows that if this goes into a federal court, it could be overturned. Keep in mind, the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court at that time was still the author of the Dred Scott decision, Roger Taney. So Lincoln wants to make sure that as a military necessity, emancipation is maintained. So this is a very carefully crafted proclamation under Lincoln's war powers as commander-in-chief. It's going all the way back to John Quincy Adams in the 1830s when he argued that if there was a rebellion in this country under the war powers, the laws of war, the laws of nations, the President of the United States would be able to declare enemy property and slaves emancipated. So the proclamation has been issued. Story's over, right? Slaves are freed. It's a happy ending. Well, no, not at all. And we should know that very well here at Gettysburg. 1863, the war continues. The promise had been made for freedom, but now the promise needed to be kept. And it would be kept by Lincoln, but also by Union soldiers on the battlefield many of whom, the deeper they went into southern states, the more they came into contact with slavery, the more they came to hate it. 
While you had some soldiers saying initially, I'm not going to fight to free the slaves, the more they come into contact with it, some begin to warm up to the Emancipation Proclamation saying, well, as a practical measure, this might help to end the war sooner. And others, as they came into contact with slavery, realized that this was something that really needed to happen. As the war continues, the summer of 1863 sees several key crucial events. One of which, of course, is the fall of Vicksburg on the Mississippi. Another happens just a stone's throw from where we currently sit, here at the Battle of Gettysburg. Had Confederates been successful in these contests and these campaigns, that promise of emancipation may have failed amidst battlefield defeat. But these defeats helped to, if you will, in a sense, defend the Emancipation Proclamation. But there was one other very key thing that happened. Well, there are several other key things that happened that summer. Right after Gettysburg, you have draft riots occurring in New York City. Low morale in the North. Many not wanting to sign up to fight or be drafted in this war. A big part of these draft riots was racial animosity towards African Americans. Emancipation was a part of that. But there's another key event in the summer of 1863 directly tied to the Emancipation Proclamation. It happens a couple weeks after Gettysburg in Charleston Harbor. Frederick Douglass said in 1863, once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S. Let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket. And there is no power on earth or under the earth which can deny that he has earned the right of citizenship in the United States. Well, one of the most overlooked parts of the Emancipation Proclamation is opening the door for African Americans to serve in the Union Army and Navy. 54th Massachusetts is the first all-black regiment recruited in the North. They make their big combat debut July 18, 1863 at Battery Wagner in Charleston Harbor, sustaining nearly 50% casualties and failing to take the fort. This, of course, has been made famous by the movie Glory. This was one of the key main events of July of 1863, proving that even though the 54th Massachusetts had not been successful in their charge at Battery Wagner, they had proven themselves every bit as brave, every bit as heroic, and every bit as citizens of this country as their fellow white soldiers. The Atlantic Monthly reacted to their efforts there, saying, through the cannon smoke of that dark night, the manhood of the colored race shines before many eyes that before would not see it also becoming a part of the Emancipation Proclamation and its impact on the country, its multifaceted impact. And of course, several months later, Lincoln makes his journey here to Gettysburg, giving that rhetorical flourish, the speech explaining what he was doing with the Emancipation Proclamation. No one was ever going to challenge the Gettysburg Address in a court of law. It's a speech. It's not a legal document. It's not a presidential proclamation. Lincoln can say pretty much whatever he wants in these remarks. But it's important to remember you can't fully understand the Emancipation Proclamation without understanding the message that Lincoln discusses here at Gettysburg in many different ways. In 1864, the war continues still. But as Congressman James Garfield said in January of 1864, now the Union Army is, quote, an abolition army. The war and its fate are still not secured. President Lincoln's re-election are still not secured. Victory was still possible for the Confederates in 1864. Emancipation was not yet a sealed final deal. You also see in 1864 other states such as Maryland, one of those border states, following Lincoln's lead in abolishing slavery on their own. 
Maryland does this by adopting a new state constitution that takes effect November 1st of 1864, abolishing slavery within the state's borders, impacting some 87,000 slaves living in the state of Maryland, according to the 1860 census. There's also a constitutional amendment that was introduced and passed by the Senate, abolishing slavery, though it did not pass the House of Representatives. Slavery had been dealt mortal blows, but it still was not yet dead. It wasn't dead until that constitutional amendment was finally passed in January of 1865. Now, Lincoln himself is among those who keenly recognized that the Emancipation Proclamation, though very important, though a major blow against slavery, there was still more work to be done. As I noted before, it's only dealing with the temporary status of slaves. It's not abolishing it as an institution itself, which is why Lincoln himself was one of the big proponents of passing the eventual 13th Amendment. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie Lincoln, correct? It's detailing these efforts. If you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. But after Lincoln's re-election, the lame duck Congress goes back and the House of Representatives passes the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which Lincoln himself said winds the whole thing up. The 13th Amendment was the king's cure for the evil of slavery. Without the Emancipation Proclamation, you don't move far enough along the line to get this amendment. It helped to make it possible. But this constitutional amendment was the final step in abolishing slavery, a permanent constitutional solution to the problem of slavery in the United States. Of course, with the end of the war, this brings new questions and new problems. What rights are African Americans going to have in this new nation that's been created as a result of the Civil War? Reconstruction would fail to deliver on many of these promises and hopes of abolitionists. Lincoln himself, of course, would not see this. So we have to ask, was the Emancipation Proclamation an important document? Did it accomplish anything? Absolutely yes. The Emancipation Proclamation was a bold presidential statement about the purpose for which this war was being fought. It not only made military emancipation a policy of the federal government, but it declared in no uncertain terms that the war would no longer be fought to preserve the Union as it once was. That Union perished alongside thousands of soldiers on the battlefields of this war. This was now a war being waged to preserve the Union as it would and as it should be, one without slavery. Of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was important, but don't just take my word for it. Many different Famous figures in our nation's history have spoken of the Emancipation Proclamation and its importance. Among them, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass and Lincoln didn't always see eye to eye on issues, but on this topic, he spoke with great eloquence. There are certain great national acts by which their relation to universal principles properly belong to the whole human family. And Abraham Lincoln's proclamation of the 1st of January, 1863, is one of these acts. One of my favorite quotes about the proclamation also comes from James Garfield. In September of 1862, as a young army officer, James Garfield wrote, I am rejoiced at the President's proclamation. It gives us light in the midst of darkness and shows us the beginning of the end. He went on to say in January, when the final version was signed, strange that a second-rate Illinois lawyer should be the instrument through whom one of the sublimest works in any age is accomplished. Charles Sumner provided a moving eulogy for President Lincoln in June of 1865 in Boston. 
saying, quote, it is impossible to exaggerate the proclamation of emancipation as an historic event. Its influence cannot be limited to the present in place or time. It will reach beyond the national jurisdiction and beyond the present age. Lincoln, through all the various circumstances and complexities of the war, was able to determine the right time and the right method with which to act. Through decades of policy and precedent, Lincoln capitalized on a key moment in American history and issued what I believe to be the most single most important presidential action in the history of this country. But it has similarities to other documents from our nation's history. If our nation had done nothing more in its whole history than to create just two documents, its contribution to civilization would be imperishable. The first of these documents is the Declaration of Independence, and the other is that which we are here to honor tonight, the Emancipation Proclamation. This speech was given September 12th of 1862. I'll tell you who gave it when I finish the quote. All tyrants, past, present, and future, are powerless to bury these truths in these declarations, no matter how extensive their legions, how vast their power, and how malignant their evil. September 12th, 1962, in New York City. That was said by Martin Luther King, Jr. for the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he's very right in comparing the Emancipation Proclamation to the Declaration of Independence. Every time I've been told at the end of a battlefield talk or a program, Ranger, don't you know the Emancipation Proclamation was really just a meaningless piece of paper? I'll respond by saying, sure was, so was the Declaration of Independence. Each one is a proclamation, a declaration, giving hope for freedom for millions, but it still needed hard work and sacrifice for that promise of freedom to become a reality. Each one was a beacon of hope, but they are meaningless without sacrifice. The Declaration of Independence was meaningless without George Washington and the Continental Army. The Emancipation Proclamation would have been meaningless without George Meade and the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg and the sacrifices of thousands of soldiers who, as Lincoln himself would describe, their tremendous sacrifices in laying their lives on the altar of freedom. As Lincoln himself noted, more work was still needed. And it's a fitting comparison that Martin Luther King Jr. made between the Emancipation Proclamation and the Declaration of Independence because Lincoln himself would note that the Declaration of Independence and its declaration that all men are created equal was so crucial to him and his beliefs. As he said at Independence Hall in February of 1861, I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. But of course, the Declaration and the proclamation were each meaningless pieces of paper, and their promises of freedom for millions were meaningless without the sacrifices of thousands. Just something to keep in mind when we evaluate the importance of these documents, that this was a key moment, arguably the most important single event in the war, but it was given life and meaning by the sacrifices of thousands on battlefields from Antietam to Gettysburg, all across this great country. On behalf of the staff here at Gettysburg National Military Park, I want to thank everyone for coming out today. Thank you for joining us for our winter lecture. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to take them. Thank you so much.
This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. The audio, of course, comes from Gettysburg National Military Park, and we'll provide a link in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com where you can see the video version of Dan Vermilia's Emancipation Proclamation Lecture. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be an Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.